You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. The Kudankulam nuclear power plant confirms it had malware in a business system, but that control systems were unaffected. Franchising coordinated inauthenticity. Facebook deletes NSO group employees. Twitter says it will no longer accept political ads. NIST wants your comments. And Moody's appears ready to consider cyber risk in its credit ratings. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, October 31st, 2019. Reports of a cyber incident at India's Kudankulam nuclear power plant have been confirmed. Reuters quotes a statement from the Nuclear Power Corporation of India Limited, acknowledging that it had found malware on a computer connected to administrative systems, but that control systems were unaffected. Various sources say the malware was D-Track, an information stealer associated with North Korea's Lazarus Group. D-Track has recently affected Indian financial and research institutions. It's worth noting that malware in a business system doesn't necessarily mean that a control network has been compromised. Sometimes attackers have been able to pivot from business to control systems, as they did in Ukraine, but in other cases, like that of the Wolf Creek plant in Kansas, they haven't. The descriptions of what happened at Kudankulam sound so far more like Wolf Creek than they do Kiev, but it's still a matter of concern. Yesterday, Facebook announced that it had taken down 35 accounts, 53 pages, 7 groups, and 5 Instagram accounts for coordinated inauthenticity. All originated in Russia and have been connected to Russian oligarch Yevgeny Prigozhin, commonly called Putin's chef, as the Washington Post reminds everyone. Their messaging focused on Africa, specifically on Madagascar, the Central African Republic, Mozambique, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the Ivory Coast, and Cameroon. The campaign's objective was election influence, generally aligned with Russian regional objectives. But there's also some informed speculation in circulation that the campaigns may represent, in some fashion, the emergence of a kind of franchise model into this form of information operations. The troll shops may also be working on behalf of local political factions. Ars Technica reports that Facebook has cancelled accounts belonging to NSO Group personnel. The cancellations seem fairly extensive. By some reports circulating on Twitter, most NSO Group employees have been affected. The NSO People Band received a message from Facebook's Instagram platform that said, quote, Your account has been deleted for not following our terms. You won't be able to log into this account, and no one else will be able to see it. We are unable to restore accounts that are deleted for these types of violations. Quote. The action follows Facebook's subsidiary WhatsApp's filing of a lawsuit against NSO Group. WhatsApp's beef comes down to this. They claim NSO Group used WhatsApp to serve Pegasus, 
which is correctly described as both spyware and as a lawful intercept product, on about 1,400 devices. WhatsApp complains that the targets included attorneys, journalists, human rights activists, political dissidents, diplomats, and other senior foreign government officials. NSO Group has said it's done nothing wrong and that it intends to contest the lawsuit vigorously. As far as the Facebook deletions are concerned, NSO Group hasn't commented. Facebook says they're welcome to appeal if they think the deletion is unfair. Yesterday, I spoke with Tanya Janka about her decision to leave Microsoft to co-found Security Sidekick. Our conversation continues with insights on the security challenges her new company is looking to face head-on. We're trying to make sure that you know all of the apps and APIs that you have. So our tool goes out and finds all of them, which I know is not sexy, inventory is not sexy, but you can't protect stuff if you don't own the stuff, if you don't know you have it. And Mm. I did so much instant response, David, for things where I didn't know I owned it. And Mm. that is the worst day of your job as an application security engineer. That's the worst incident ever. You have no idea what it is and your data is for sale on the dark web or like it's being attacked and you don't even know where it is. So you can't even block the attack. I was a developer for a really long time, 17 years before I switched full time to security. And just so many security people getting in my way. Don't you know I have deadlines? I've got a feature. I need to do this. And they'd be like, oh, well, if you just send it to us, when this guy gets around to it, he's going to scan it with this thing. There's going to be, you know, all this crap wrong. No one's going to explain to you what it is. So um, we put our tool not in the pipeline, which I realize people are like, that's sacrilege. Um, but you don't run it manually. It runs itself. So it just lives on your network as an invisible proxy after your DNS. And so every time you visit anything, it just, it catalogs it. It's like, did you know you own this? Cause this isn't on the list you gave us. You should check hmm. it out. Cause it belongs to you. It lives on your network or it's living in your cloud. Or did you know that, you know, the business bought this SaaS tool and that's living on your network now? FYI, this is phase one of our roadmap. And we have more that we are planning once we perfect the tool with this stuff. I'm so excited. I have to say, one of the things that I always enjoy when I have the opportunity to chat with you is that uh, you are so unapologetically you. Um, <laughs> and I mean that in the in a, as a compliment. I mean, mm-hmm. I think in this world, this sort of button-down world in which we live, and particularly uh, in information security when it can be so serious and there are big things at stake, um, the energy and the enthusiasm that you bring, uh, I find uh, refreshing. And I wonder, have you found that sometimes people try to push back on that? Have, has, has, there, has there been a challenge for you to, to maintain your sense of self in a world that might not always react positively to it? A little bit of pushback, but mostly those people just go sit in a different talk or don't read my blog I have had some feedback from conference talks like, oh, she's, you know, like so bubbly and effervescent. It's hard to take her seriously when she's not being serious. I am serious. It doesn't mean I can't be in a good mood about Mm -hmm. it or be really excited that I made this giant pipeline or whatever the thing is that I did. Like sometimes people um, do react badly, but those people are in the wrong talk because you can't please everyone. You know, one other area of pushback that I've gotten is from 
old school security people that do not mm. want to change and they don't want to talk to developers and they feel that all the security problems in software are all the developers faults. I actually read a talk about it because I had so many bad experiences as a developer with security people. It took me a long time. And yeah. you know, the first time I had someone run a VA scanner on my app, he found a bunch of things wrong with it. And I'm like, oh, you know, what's this? I've never seen this before. And he's like, if you were a good developer, you would know. Mm. You should know. And then, you know, it took me three times to pass the scanning tool. And then I finally did. And I was like, wow, that was really hard. And he was like, if you're a good developer, there never would have been any problems with your app. And it's like, <laughs> what type of punishment? Like, why would you why would you speak to another person that way? But then when I learned about, you know, scanning tools and I learned about hacking and pen testing and AppSec and solving problems, I was like, oh, that guy has no idea what he's talking about. He... Right. He was he refused to give me help because he had no clue and he just doesn't know the answers and doesn't and is too afraid to be vulnerable and admit he doesn't know, especially some workplaces where you can't admit you're wrong. And I'll just admit I'm wrong. Yeah. Like even in an interview that's being recorded, sometimes I get asked a question. I'm like, you know what? I don't know the answer to that. And I'm like, but I can find out or, you know, yeah. maybe this or that. And we've set up like places in our industry where people feel like you're not allowed to ask for help and you're not allowed to admit you're wrong. And then that is when bad things happen. That is when developers are like, no problem. I'll write my own encryption algorithm mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or mm -hmm. something else. Right. And mm -hmm. oh no. That is the one and only Tanya Janka. She is the CEO and co-founder of Security Sidekick. Twitter has decided that it won't try to fact-check or police paid political content. They'll simply no longer accept political ads. The exclusion affects ads for candidates and issues, but not voter registration drives. The move is getting mixed reviews. Some think it's a sensible and even-handed way of handling inauthenticity and influence operations. This is basically Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey's view, who's tweeted that influence and reach should be earned and not something one should be able to purchase. Others think the decision to decline political ads is a way of getting Twitter out of the censorship business altogether, but there are skeptics on this matter. At best, Twitter seems to have kicked the problem down the road. The platform is surely right when it says that fact-checking social media at scale is practically impossible, but it's not clear that deciding what's a campaign or issue ad will be much easier. And of course, many people read Twitter's announcement as a shot at Facebook's recent refusal to fact-check political ads, a way of saying, hey everybody, we're better than the House of Zuckerberg. In the U.S., the National Institute of Standards and Technology, better known by its acronym NIST, has asked for comments on proposed cryptographic standards. The two draft standards in question deal with digital signature standards and recommendations for discrete logarithm-based cryptography, elliptic curve domain parameters. NIST's goal is to develop sound standards that will help ensure these technologies are implemented securely. If you have thoughts on either of these, NIST would like to hear from you within the next 90 days. And finally, credit rating company Moody's made a presentation at Energy Tech 2019 on the credit and financial implications of cyber risk. Control Global welcomed Moody's perspective as providing those responsible for control system security a key to the boardroom. 
The highest risk sectors are the ones, as Control Global puts it, that quote, rely on technology, are highly interconnected, and have limited ability to revert to manual operation. End quote. Cyber attacks that have an operational impact can be expected to have an effect on credit ratings. We've seen insurance affect security practices and risk calculations. They can now be expected to affect credit. Even if you're self-insured, as some power utilities are, everybody needs credit. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's the Program Director for Public Policy and External Affairs at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, always great to have you back. Uh, we had an article come by. This is from a website called Hackaday that uh, primarily is uh, for hardware hackers. And uh, it's written by Jenny List. And the title is Europeans Now Have the Right to Repair. And that means the rest of us probably will, too. What's going on here? So anytime we get a refrigerator, dishwasher, etc., there's sort of an expectation that if one of the parts doesn't work, we can just return it to the manufacturer and um, you know they'll give us one in working condition or they'll fix whatever uh, issue is affecting that device. Sure, warranties. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the truth is that in the United States, at least, there aren't uh, rigorous legal protections for uh, warranties for those devices, and hmm. that leaves the consumer behind. You know, obviously, this is to the delight of, of manufacturers who 
don't want to have to pay to produce a, a new item. Well, also, I can imagine if my, my dishwasher breaks down and I look for a replacement part, I'm handy, I'm capable of doing something on my own, but those replacement parts have been discontinued. That means instead of fixing it, I'm going to have to go out and buy a new dishwasher. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which means you, you know, can't go to your local uh, home supply store and do it yourself, even if you are a handy person. Right. Uh, so the upshot of this article is that the European Union is introducing new rules governing what's called repairability. Hmm. Uh, the law in the EU will mandate that certain household appliances and other devices, so they're talking about washing machines, dishwashers, refrigerators, TVs, hmm. uh, anything you can think of, any of those items for sale within the EU have to have a guaranteed period of replacement part availability. Um, and those replacement parts must be designed so that they can be worked upon with standard tools, whatever that means. So probably yeah. things one would one would have in their uh, toolbox. Right. So how does this affect us in the United States? So as we saw with GDPR, when you have a rigorous uh, regulatory standard that comes out basically on anything that applies to the European Union, multinational corporations are going to be forced to change their policies writ large to apply. So you and I got a million different emails when GDPR was uh, going into effect saying, you know, <laughs> yes, we've updated we <laughs> the Verizon terms of service. <laughs> right. Uh, the reason they did that is, you know, the European Union is such a huge marketplace. They're going to have to make these changes for all of those customers anyway. They might as well do it for all of their uh, customers uh, across the globe. Mm -hmm. And I think that applies to what's happening here with this repairability law. Because it's being introduced uh, in the European Union, device manufacturers are going to have to adjust their business practices to comply with this law. And while they're doing that to comply with the European law, um, it's necessarily going to, to filter down to the United States. Hmm. Um, and this could potentially be uh, very, very good news for consumers. Yeah, it's, I, I think the part that, that caught my eye was the part about the, the requirement to have uh, standard tools, because I think particularly with uh, electronic devices, um, it seems like they'll have some bizarrely shaped screwdriver necessary. You know, it's a, here's our new dodecahedron-shaped screwdriver that you, that you must have in order to unscrew this, and you can't go buy that at the local hardware store. Yeah, I'm very curious as to how they, <laughs> yeah, how they define standard tools. As someone who's put together a lot of Ikea furniture recently, uh -huh. you know that yes. nothing is yeah. ever completely standardized. Right, right. You know, there's going to be one screw that works, yeah, as you said, with this particular device. Well, at um, least Ikea has the, uh, you know, the, the, at least they're they're uh, uh, kind enough to include the tools with the... Well, exactly. I guess they have to. You're putting yeah, it together yourself. But. Now, you know, maybe that's <laughs> something we'll see as a result of this this law in the European Union. Oh, interesting. They'll right. They'll prepackage the tools with the device. Right. Is it cheaper to throw in a, a customized screwdriver than to change all the screws in the device, almost certainly, I would say yes. Now, I wonder if I, <laughs> I wonder if that would satisfy the terms of the repairability law. Uh -huh, uh -huh. My guess is that it probably would. Of course, there's a the problem of you get this device, um, you put the package in some corner of your basement. It has the tools in it. Right. Five years later, you clear out your basement. Ten years later, the device breaks. Mm -hmm. And so is there still sort of a repairability element? The other sort of downside to consumers that they mentioned in this article is that um, the 
uh, repairs don't have to be uh, directly available to the consumer. They can just be uh, available to the manufacturer. So hmm. uh, the spare parts, in other words, aren't going to be made directly available to the consumer. Oh. They're going to be released to the appliance repair trade. I see. Um, so that means that the consumer is going to have to go seek those spare parts uh, from the repair trade. So that could be a, that's that's another you know hurdle that the consumer is going to have to go through to get access to the, to uh, something that would fix these devices. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, well, it'll be it'll be fun to see how this uh, trickles down to uh, us here in the states. But uh, interesting development. Yes. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI... The best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust Plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. 
experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.